You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. We're going to be ordering our corporate worship uh, around a question. A question brought to a letter found in Scripture. And the question is simply this. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be Jesus' follower? And the letter that we're looking at is the first letter of the Apostle Peter. And the reason we're asking this, friends, is that scriptures, the Scriptures are consistent in the fact that following Jesus is more than simple belief. As if uh, intellectual assent made you a follower of Jesus. To talk about following Jesus instead is to talk about a couple of things. It's to talk about knowing Jesus, growing to know Jesus more as he's revealed in Scripture. But not just that, but also to show Jesus more into the world through word and deed, and then growing to understand that the way in which we grow in those things is through uh, the dynamics of the gospel, not through just increased effort. In other words, if, if you use, to use Christian language, what we're talking about is discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And working this out in all the various aspects of our lives can be complicated, and so we're going to take the next three months to work through that by walking through this letter. Okay? If you have your place in, uh, in 1 Peter, at 1 Peter 1, if you stand in honor of God's Word, as is our habit here, we're just going to be reading the first two verses. Friends, this is God's Word, given so that we might flourish. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know uh, how much we have to say and to talk about this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts, meet us where we are. We've come into this room with lots of different stories and and, uh, journeys through this week. We pray that you would meet us. Give us grace to hear from you. Lord, would you let um, who you are, your cross, your gospel come forward. Let me fade to the background. And in all these ways, grow us into your image now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. We do have a lot to get through this morning, so, um, uh, wow, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, One of my favorite images in all of uh, cinema is an image from that masterpiece, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, in which um, Indiana Jones and his father are escaping Berlin while being chased by Nazis, and they do so by climbing onto a, a blimp, a dirigible, right? Uh, not the most expedient mode of travel, but I guess that was the best they could do. And so as they sit there, uh, the Germans that are pursuing them find their way on board. They begin looking for them. And um, Indiana Jones decides he's got this great idea, so he goes and he... Uh, you know, puts his arm around one of the workers, the, I don't know, servers, I guess, and leads him through the door, and of course you hear the 
the feigned uh, fighting sounds, and then suddenly out comes Indiana Jones in the, in the coat and the hat and all that stuff. And he begins going to people asking for their papers, right? And it, as, he's, as he's approaching this German officer and getting near the window, he, finally he stands behind him and he, he asks for his papers. And um, the officer turns around and Indiana Jones uh, scuffles with him and throws him out the window. And everyone's all stunned and he says, no papers. And suddenly they all like whip out their papers because they don't want to get thrown out. Uh, it's a funny way of talking about how one's credentials are important in defining one's place, right? That was what they were afraid of, that they didn't have the right credentials. They're about to get tossed, just like uh, the German officer was. This is true uh, of, of blimps. This is also true of the Christian faith. So when Peter begins this letter, which is going to be laying out a fairly comprehensive picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to follow Christ in the midst of trial, in the midst of a world uh, that is hostile to Christianity, uh, Peter begins by stating the profile of a follower, a follower's papers, if you will. Uh, and, and these things are important because if, if what Peter says right here is not true of us, then the rest of this doesn't matter. Okay? So this morning we're going to look at this text in, in, in just two ways. And there's an outline in your bulletin, as always, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at the, the, the apostle's profile, and then we're going to look at the follower's profile. Okay? All right, let's get started. These first two verses of Peter's letter incorporate a greeting. That is to say, uh, most letters, you know, you know this, when you write a letter or an email, uh, most of the time you incorporate some form of greeting. Some of you don't. Some of you just launch right in. I know this. But most will give some kind of greeting, dear so-and-so, or just a name, right? Well, this is the same thing. Peter is giving a greeting, but this is a little longer than your standard greeting in Greek or in the New Testament. Um, there's a ton in these two verses. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive in and just look at them, okay? First, the writer identifies himself as Peter. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, uh, then you probably know something about this guy named Peter. But since some of us in this room are not, let me, let me introduce you, okay? Peter was one of Jesus' followers, one of his first followers. He was a fisherman from a, from, um, a town in Galilee, um, uh, Capernaum was where he was from. Uh, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel in the first century. Uh, Peter was one of those guys who, who, when Jesus called him, left his nets, left his boats, which must have been a fairly substantial business. Um, he shared it with his brother, had a couple of boats. Uh, he left and followed Jesus. Um, he's called by Jesus to be one of his apostles. We'll talk about that in a minute. And within even that group, he's one of three that gets real special time with Jesus. Like, they, they're his buds. They're the guys that he walk, he goes places with, takes them on things that others don't get to see. Peter is also, in the New Testament, the first to confess Jesus as the Christ. We hear about that in Mark 8, Matthew 16. He is also the one who chews Jesus out because Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm going to die. Peter says, nuh-uh. That's not... It ain't going to happen like that, right? Uh, he is the one who denies Jesus three times, and he is the one whom Jesus says he will build his church upon. And after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is the first Christian to preach a sermon. He's the first one to proclaim the gospel to people who aren't Jews. Um, and he is ultimately one who is killed by the emperor Nero sometime in the 60s, not the 1960s, like the 60s. Okay. Um, Peter followed Jesus for three years on earth, 
He knew what it was right. He knew what it was to get it right about Jesus and what it was to get it wrong about Jesus. And he remained a follower of Jesus through coercion to stop preaching and jailing when the warnings didn't take. Peter was a man of extremes. And so when, when people in the first century, Christian congregations in the first century would have heard his name, it would have brought to mind both greatness and brokenness, which means that he is the perfect one to talk to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it's not just that he's Peter. He defines himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, so much can be said about that here. We can't go into that fully. Let me, let me be brief. The word apostle simply means, in the original, sent one. Right? And in, in the New Testament, it has both a general meaning and a specific one. In its general way, it kind of speaks of Christians, people who are sent into the world. Um, but in its more specific meaning, there, there's something different. And that's what Peter is referencing here. In Mark 3, we're told that Jesus, after a whole night of praying... Uh, that he chooses amongst all of his followers, and there are a bunch of people following at this point, he chooses 12, 12 of these folks, and he calls them apostles so that they might be with him and they might be sent out to preach. Okay, This type of apostle, this specific type of apostle, was um, unique and unrepeatable. Okay, The general type of apostle, we, we, we're kind of all that, if you're a Christian here this morning. But the specific type, the, the, the specific thing that, that Peter is that's unique and unrepeatable. I don't care what the billboards say advertising somebody to be apostle so-and-so. That they're no, that, I mean, that as much as your apostle so-and-so. That Not this kind of apostle. Okay? And here's why. These were special emissaries. In the ancient Near East, there, these would have been what um, in, in Hebrew would have been called a, a sheliak, which means a, a representative who is so uniquely tied to the one that they're representing, normally a king, it's a legal representative, that they literally... That, they, are, they can be regarded truly as the person they're representing. You following me? In other words, an apostle of Jesus Christ is literally someone who, when they come and they speak as an apostle of Jesus Christ, are speaking as Jesus Christ. Okay? You can be regarded as the person represented. And in the early Christian church, apostles had the unique authority to be the foundation of this newly forming community, this newly forming church. And this is what is brought out when Peter calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I know most of us think that um, the word Christ is like Jesus' last name, right? You've got Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and then Jesus Christ. But it's not. It's not a last name. It's a, it's a title. In the Jewish thought world, this is a title that draws out a story. And the story goes like this. God creates the world, he creates it good. Some of you are familiar with this story, I hope, by this point. Uh, God creates the, story, er, creates the world, he creates it good, and he creates humanity to steward God's good creation, to be in relationship with him. But in, a, in, the, in the course of time, we decided that that wasn't good enough. We didn't want to be his image, we wanted to be his equal. We didn't want to steward creation, we wanted to be God over it. And we wanted to call the shots on what is good and what is evil instead of letting God do that. And so humanity betrays God and turns away from Him. And it wreaks havoc on everything. On everything. For humanity, uh, we're, we are, the way this looks, the, the havoc that it wreaks on us, on the one hand, we are, we're corrupt. Uh, which means that by nature we're now bent towards betraying God. We're bent away from Him. Uh, that... Not just that, but we are now under the guilt that comes with betraying a person. And not just any person, right? Betraying a person brings guilt enough, but betraying a divine person, the divine person, the one who, who has done nothing but good and love for us always. That's the kind of guilt that we bear. 
But in the midst of that, God promises to fix that by dealing with our guilt and corruption. Right there, right there at the point of betrayal. And throughout the Old Testament, this promise is developed out. And as it develops, God says, I'm going to do it through this guy's family, and then I'm going to do it through this grandkid, and then I'm going to do it, it's going to go this way and this way until finally it says, I'm going to do it through this king, a Messiah, which when translated into Greek is Christ. And when Jesus comes on the scene, that is the very person he claims to be, the long-awaited and promised king who will set the worlds to rights, who will take our guilt and our corruption and, and remove them. He, he claims to be the answer to our deepest problems. In short, Jesus claims to be not just any king, not just a king, but the king, the king of the universe, to whom everyone owes their allegiance. Okay, so what? What does this mean? These two descriptors, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, when put together, mean that Peter is speaking from the authority of both of one who has been there and done that, who has followed Jesus, made mistakes, right? Generally, we tend to listen to folks who have been there, done that, made mistakes, and come out the better. He's been there, done that, made his mistakes, but also one who speaks for the king in a unique way empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means that we need to pay attention especially if we believe ourselves to be followers of this Jesus guy, right? If you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus this morning, we need to pay attention to what he's saying. Now, that deals with Peter. Let's look at us. Peter's writing to a collection of Christian churches in a region that we'll, we'll highlight in a minute. Uh, but, but the first thing he says about them is that they are chosen. Look there. Uh, right after that, he says, to those who are elect. All right. Now, let me warn you, we're about to wade into some waters. I just want to prepare you for that. This is, this is going to get a little thick. The word elect, okay, or chosen, some of your translations say, it is not new to the New Testament, okay? In fact, this is, a wor- this is a word that, again, like the word Christ or apostle, draws with it a story, a story that, thankfully, we've already begun to tell. Okay, remember that I said that after we betrayed God, we became both guilty and corrupt. That corruption was not partial, it's not like, well, just a part of us was bent away from God, but the majority of us were still all good, right? No, no. The way the Bible tells it, literally in, in Genesis, a uh, little later in Genesis, it says that every inclination of our hearts were only evil all the time. It sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? Now, some of you are like, not every inclination of my heart is evil all the time. Well, okay, I, I, I'm following you, but the thing is we have to, of course, define good and evil based on what... God defines it as in in his scriptures, um, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, But here's the thing. God's promise was not somehow frustrated by our bent away from him. It's not as if now God is wringing his hands because we are so utterly corrupt that there's no way that we can can come near him. Um, Instead, he chooses a guy. He chooses this dude named Abraham. And Abraham, the funny thing about Abraham is he's just like everybody else. He's worshiping false gods in this city called Ur. Er, that's a creative name for a city, right? I mean, like, I mean, like my kids could have come up with that. What do you want to name your city? Er, like, yeah, anyway. Okay, so they're in Ur, right? Uh, but God comes and he says, he comes to Abraham and he says, you're with me now. You're not with them. You're with me now. And I'm going to send you out somewhere. And he tells them that it's through his family, through Abraham's family, of which at the time you realize he had none, right? He's like 100 years old. He got no kids. He's like, family. Like, uh, and God says, I'll take care of that. But he, he says that through your family, I'm going to deal with our, the problem of your sin. 
But at the same time, God chose Abraham not so he and his family would have it good. Right? That wasn't why God chose him. He chose Abraham and his family so that they could be a blessing to the world. God's election, listen to me, God's election always brings with it a vocation. It always brings with it a vocation, a job to do. In other words, God initiates a relationship with Abraham. He brings him to himself. But that didn't lead to passivity for Abraham. It led to work. It led to work. This is the kind of notion that Peter is bringing to the table. Okay? Now, let me be clear on two things before we move off this. Some of you are, some of you are thinking like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you, saying, are you saying that God picks people to be on his team? Yes. I'm saying that not only is the Bible clear that that does happen, I'm saying it must happen. It must happen. Because, see, our problem is not a little problem. Jesus says uh, to this dude named Nicodemus, he's talking to him, he says, unless, unless you're made new, unless you're born again, unless something happens, something invades your life and changes things, you can't even see what God's doing in the world. You and I, by nature, are totally blind to that thing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in his works that we are literally dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead people don't need a little bit of help. They don't just need a nudge in the right direction. They need a resurrection. They're helpless. If God doesn't initiate and make us new, we won't choose to be reconciled with Him. We are bent towards independence. And that is what the Bible means when it says every inclination of our hearts were only evil all the time. We were bent towards independence from God. We're like, wait a minute, I thought independence was a virtue. No, not in God's economy. That is the chief sin. We are made to be dependent on Him. And instead, we want things our own way. But secondly, this isn't like being born into some really wealthy family where everything's handed to you. Like I said, election always means vocation. God's people are chosen to be a blessing, not to bathe in blessing. God's people are chosen to to be agents of God's favor throughout the world, not just to bask in His favor. That is what it means to be chosen. It is an object of pure grace, called to be an agent of that grace through the world. You following me? You tracking? All right, good. Let's keep going. Because Peter says next that these elect folks are in exile in the dispersion throughout all these places. Now, first off, the area that he talks about is is um, a large part of what is present-day Turkey, Okay. You can see up there. This is the area. You see Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Pontus, uh, Pamphylia, all that stuff. That's modern-day Turkey, right? So he's writing to a very large geographic region. This is a lot of churches. Okay? Now, secondly, though, this notion is this notion of dispersion. The dispersion, or some of your translations say um, diaspora, was, was a way of talking about how the Jews were spread throughout the Roman world, right? Because some of them made it back from exile into, into um, Jerusalem, and then... Um, in, in Judea and went through all the trials and headaches that went through trying to rebuild, but some of them decided to seek out on their own. And there were, there were communities throughout. And so that was one way of talking about how God's people are spread throughout a larger culture. Okay? The diaspora, the dispersion. And this is reinforced with this notion of exile. Now, we talked about exile a lot last week as we finished our Gospel and Life series. I want to remind us a little bit. We can't, for the sake of time, go into all of it. The recording from last week's on the website, okay? But, um, but I do want to mention a couple of things. What this word means, exile, is it means being forced to live somewhere that's not your home, right? Uh, being forced to live somewhere that's not your home. And in the Old Testament, especially after Jeremiah, it was used to talk about God's people living in an area in which they are not citizens. 
They are citizens of God's kingdom, but they also live in Bithynia, Cappadocia, Pamphylia. It's about... It's about being, having a dual citizenship. Here's why this matters. Peter names all these cities that these folks live in. But they're not defined by those cities. Their identity is not bound up in being Cappadocian, Pamphylian. They live there, and they are called to a vocation there because they're elect. But ultimately, their identity is as exiles. In other words, they are citizens of another city, a heavenly one, the one that God, the, the kingdom that God is creating. And so a follower, a disciple of Jesus, no matter where they live, they see that place that they live as, at best, their secondary citizenship. First and foremost, they are citizens of God's kingdom. And then they are citizens of Pontus, citizens of Cappadocia, citizens of the United States, citizens of Virginia, etc., in other words, if you are a disciple of Jesus, your identity cannot be wrapped up in where you are from or where you are now living. Your identity is as a follower of Jesus. Okay? Now, the next four of these are really great, but we have to understand that they are all meant to explain something. They are all meant to explain what it means to be elect exiles. Okay? Or better, explain how such a thing happened. Okay? How is it that these people, and by proxy, anyone who's a disciple of Jesus, became elect exiles? Here it comes, okay? The first is that they were foreknown by God the Father, okay? Now follow me, because we, we misstep here really easily. Most of us, when we hear foreknown or foreknowledge, we think fortune teller, right? Gypsy lady, crystal ball, woo, read your palm. Like, that's what we think. That is not what this word means. Not at all. And, and when we do that, we somehow want to dull the edge of the word elect. What I mean is that what we do is we say, yeah, see, it's according to God's foreknowledge. So God knows what we're going to do way down the road, and then he chooses knowing that we're going to choose him. Which completely empties the word choose of any meaning. Okay? Uh, that, that's not what this means at all. Okay? Because here's the thing. When we think foreknowledge, we think Greek when the apostles wrote about foreknowledge, they were thinking in a more Hebraic, Hebrew way of dealing with things. Here's why that matters. Because in the Hebrew way of understanding things, knowledge is relational. The Greeks loved to think about knowledge in terms of events, choices, fate. Jews did not. The Jewish worldview is all about relationships, right? Uh, and, so, and so the word foreknowledge... When the Jewish way of talking about knowing had to do with intimacy, it had to do with a personal, intimate knowledge. And so when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word that Peter uses here was used to translate this idea. Not, not one of understanding, not one of knowing what choices are going to be made, but one of love, one of an intimate, loving knowledge of another person. And so God's elect exiles are intimately known beforehand by God the Father. Now, why does this matter? Follow me. We talked about God's election, His choosing, and when we say that, we can often think that God's choosing is like capricious, like He's got this big board and it's full of faces, and He's like throwing a dart at it, like, and we're like, oh, oh well, all right, I got to take that one now. You know, it's not capricious at all. What this is telling us is that God's choice is born out of His intimate and loving knowledge of us. Now, some of us are thinking, right now, you mean what I've done? You mean? But no, not based on what you've done. Based on who you are. You can't earn love. 
Love, there's nothing you do to earn someone else's love. It's not as if loving knowledge of you is something that you did enough of and they're like, wow, I really love what he did. No, no, you. And, 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 and as I say that, you're thinking like, all of me? Wait a minute, all of, yes, all of you. Your beauty and your ugliness. You and I ask ourselves the question all the time, would anyone love me if they really knew me? Friends, if you are a Christian here in this room this morning, I'm here to tell you that that answer is yes. God knows you intimately, better than you know yourself. And He has placed His affection on you. All of our status as God's exiles begins in His loving, intimate knowledge of you. But a follower is also sanctified, okay? We're made exiles by the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, if that language is strange to you, let me just say... um, when, when I say God, God the Father, and then I say the, the Holy Spirit or the, or the Spirit, if that language is strange to you, let me just say, the Christian conception of God is that God is one God in three persons. Not, um, not three gods, and not one God in three forms, like, you know, the whole water thing. Water is solid, liquid, gas. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's an ancient church heresy. Uh, but, but he is one God in three distinct yet united persons. Okay, And this introduction highlights that truth because all three are mentioned. Now, if the word sanctify is familiar to you, you were probably in the minority here this morning. <laughs> and, and even still, if it is familiar to you, you probably associate it with morality or purity, right? And that's part of it, but it's not all. Because what this word means is it means to be set apart. God is... Uh, ultimately holy, and and the ultimate of holiness, uh, the same word that's used here, in the Bible because of his distinctness, which includes moral purity. Right? It includes it. It's just not completely subsumed by it. He's completely distinct from creation. We become elect exiles because of the foreknowledge of God, but through the Holy Spirit setting us apart. Now, remember what I said a few minutes ago, that in John 3, uh, Jesus is talking to that dude named Nicodemus, and he says, you can't even see what's going on in the kingdom. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're, unless you're reborn. This is what he was talking about. Because again, we're talking about the problem of our corruption. Okay? Stay with me. That, that notion that we are in need of rescue from God. That for us to be restored to him, he has to act because we're bent away from him. That is where the Spirit comes in. He sets us apart. He makes us new. To use the words of the, of the Apostle Paul, he makes us alive. He changes our nature. If our nature is bent away from God, He comes in and He changes that to make us back towards God. The Scripture uses so many metaphors to communicate this. It talks about being given a new heart. Uh, Being born again. Perhaps you've heard that language. Um, That's what this means. Being made alive. All communicating the same thing. That to be a Christian means, listen to me, to be a Christian means that God invades your life and changes you so that you can do the very next thing that Peter is talking about. In other words, from first to last, if you are a Christian here this morning, it is because of the work of God, not because of something you did. So we are made elect exiles, followers of Jesus, by the foreknowledge of God, by the, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience. Now, many of us are like, I knew it. Here's, here's what I was waiting for. Just tell me what to do. That's, this is what this is all about. Okay, well, stay with me. This is different than you think. Because again, this comes back to that notion of corruption. When humanity betrayed God back in the garden, 
All right? We became by nature turned away from God, independent of Him, and thus disobedient. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? That the chief problem in the garden was that we wanted to seek life apart from God. We were made for Him to be dependent on Him, to be dependent creatures on Him. We want to seek life apart from Him, to do things on our own. And so our disobedience isn't to some kind of distant law code. Our, our disobedience is to a person. A person. The God that we were made for. In other words, by nature, we cannot be obedient to God. Now, that is not to say you can't be moral. Okay? But that isn't the same as being obedient to God. Here's what I mean. Jesus said in John 6, when asked what we have to do to be obedient to God, he said this, to believe in the one he has sent. That would be him. Okay? In other words, that, uh, some of you right now are like, wait a minute. Are you saying that to be obedient to God, I have to believe in Jesus? Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? But here's why. Because the Bible says that our problem isn't that we aren't good. Again, it's not that we're not good, it's that we're independent. It's that we're independent, seeking to live life, seeking to define reality on our own terms. Does that at times lead us into places where we're definitely going bad and things are really... Yes, of course. Sometimes it can look really clean, really nice, but completely divorced from any semblance of God. And it's just as bad. Because that is the problem. The Bible calls that sin, it's sin, a relational betrayal of God. If sin were just breaking the rules, friends, then keeping the rules would be enough. But it's not. But also, I should say this, believing in Jesus isn't just saying, yeah, I think Jesus is cool. Jesus is just all right with me, you know. Um, or, or even, I think he really existed. Like, I really believe Jesus existed, and I, I might even think he rose from the dead. That's not what it means to believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means more than simply believing in affirmations about Jesus or thinking the dude was cool and you'd like to hang out with him. Okay? Believing in Jesus means turning away from the things you are hoping that will make you right before God. In other words, turning away from your independence, hoping that you're rule-keeping or you're pretending that God has no rules, that, that those two things will make you right before Him, and instead becoming dependent on God in Jesus, laying your life in His hands. In Acts 17, Paul says that God now commands all people to repent, that is, to turn back to Jesus. And that is what Peter's talking about here. Let me be clear. This is an exclusive claim. God suffers no rivals. None. We repent and we believe on Jesus because we have been set apart by the Spirit. And this is no one-time deal. Because being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, is characterized by this. We continually turn away from seeking, seeking for life apart from God. Seeking life in sex and in money and power in fame, in insecurity and control. Seeking life in acceptance. And instead, we return to Jesus who is the only hope for us. So let me be clear. You can't claim to be a Christian and continue to live in unrepentant known sin. At that point, you're not following Jesus. You're following sex or money or control, or acceptance. You're not believing in Jesus at all. 
Now, finally, we have the fact that we are elect exiles by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. In other words, a follower is forgiven. Now, let's be clear. The sprinkling thing is, sounds really weird to all of us. Okay? And I don't care if you've been a Christian your whole life. It still sounds a little weird. And you're like, that does not sound appealing to me. Okay? Well, let, me let me highlight why this wouldn't have been weird to Peter's followers. Because they were familiar with the Old Testament. Very familiar with the Old Testament. It was the only Bible they had. And and this idea of sprinkling uh, would have brought to mind Exodus 24. And of course, all of us are like, oh, Exodus 24, now I understand. No, of course we don't. Let me, let me remind us, okay? God has rescued, in, in Exodus 24, God has already rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, right? He's drawn them out. Some of you have seen the movie Prince of Egypt. That's what that's about. He draws them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He, he is bringing them into the land that they were made for. And while on their way, they stop at a mountain, and there, God makes a covenant with them. Okay? Covenant is a promise-bound relationship. It's a relationship governed by promises. And he, he draws them back to themselves, or to himself. He makes this, he makes this, this covenant, this promise-governed relationship, and then they are sprinkled with blood as a sign of forgiveness. I know, I know, I know. Follow me, okay? Just stay with me. Because remember the story. Because we're not, in the, in the story, our problem is not just that we're corrupt, but also that we're guilty. God had told Adam and Eve that if they turned from him, they would die. In other words, death is not natural to creation. It's an invader to it. It's a, it's a, it's a curse um, that comes because of our sin. But that death doesn't just mean physical death, but judgment for our betrayal, or what the New Testament calls hell, right? So throughout the Old Testament, especially in the sacrifices, God continues to paint a picture that our betrayal is real. It's not pretend. Okay, that our betrayal is real, that it has real consequences, uh, that, and that to make it just kind of go away uh, can't happen. It, it must be born either by us or by someone else, and that is where Jesus comes in. Okay, think with me. Some of you are familiar with this uh, analogy I've used before. It, if you steal $20 from me, if you take $20 from me, I have two choices. I can get that $20 from you, or I can forgive you. But think, 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 think. It's not like if I forgive you, $20 magically comes into my wallet. Right? Either I pay the 20 bucks, or you do. That's what forgiveness is. Many of us think that forgiveness is just pretending it didn't happen. No, no, no. You can't pretend 20 bucks didn't happen. Maybe, maybe for some of you, you're like, well, yeah, okay, like 2,000 bucks, okay? Think with me. But the point is, you can't pretend it didn't happen. Either you absorb the cost or I will. And that is what Jesus did. In Jesus, God came not to make our betrayal go away, as if he could go, yeah, yeah, that never happened. No, no, that's not what he did at all. Instead, he came to bear the cost of it. God came in Jesus, bearing our betrayal in his own body, by his own blood, so that those who come to him by faith might be forgiven. The sin didn't go away. Someone else bore the cost for it. Okay? The guilt didn't just magically... Someone else paid it. Being an elect exile, a follower, means being foreknown by the Father, set apart by the Spirit, so that we could repent and believe in obedience to the Son and be forgiven by His shed blood on the cross. Now, let me sum this up. I know we're going a little longer than normal, so just stay with me. Some of you are here this morning, and you think that being a Christian means trying pretty hard, um, going to church, being a pretty good guy or girl, 
right? Trying harder than others, you know? Uh, According to Peter and the rest of the Bible, I am sorry, but you are wrong. If you have never known the forgiveness of your sins by repenting of all the ways you have been seeking life apart from Jesus and trusting in Him, and doing that because you have been awakened to your need, as if, as if you were blind and then suddenly you, your eyes came open, all because God has known you and loved you, then can I tell you, things are not okay. Things are not okay. I don't care how many times you come to this church. It's not okay. A disciple of Jesus, a follower, is not someone who thinks Jesus is cool. It is someone who has been set apart by God to abandon all the ways they were trying to make themselves right and trust in Jesus. If you are not sure this is you, listen to me, if you are not sure this is you this morning, do not leave this place without talking to me. Do not. Let's talk. It's important. Okay? But others of us are here, and and we have done this. But at the same time, we are pulled to believe that being a follower of Jesus means doing this or that, voting this way or voting that way, believing this theology or that theology, right? We've we've come to believe that being a Christian is about um, something we do, an identity. Uh, We have missed the fact that we are exiles. Friends, your identity is wrapped up only in the fact that you are beloved by God, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to God and the forgiveness through the Son. That is who you are. All that other stuff is just hiking. That is who you are. Someone chosen to be in this city, the city of Stanton, as a dual citizen, a dual citizen of another city, and a vocation to bless it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are in desperate need of you this morning. Because everyone in this room, every human that's ever lived, is not an alien from the ideas of guilt and corruption. They are part of who we are. And if that is to change, it is going to be because you invade our life. Some of us here in this morning, here in this room this morning, need you to invade our life. So we ask that you would do it. I ask, I, I beg of you, would you invade their life? Would you make them new for the sake of obedience and repentance and faith and forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus? Would you do that? For the rest of us, Lord, we need to be reminded and conformed again to the fact that our identity, the fundamental thing about who we are is that we are foreknown by God the Father, set apart, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience and forgiveness to the Son. We are elect exiles. But that does not mean that we will forever be exiles. And so I pray that as we, as we go through the next three months looking at this, at, at this book of 1 Peter and as we continue to think on our identity as exiles here in this city, that you would give us a vision for the new creation that is coming. And that we might be a blessing in this city out of joy knowing that there will come a day where you will make all things new. And because of that identity, we will be a part of it. That's all I ask. We ask. In the great name of Jesus. Amen.